Church of God, our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 4. It's on page 1,917 of the Bibles in the pews. Over the months of October and November, we've been looking at these opening chapters of the book of Revelation, at these seven letters of Jesus Christ to the churches of Asia Minor. And these letters haven't always been easy to read. These letters are written to churches that find themselves in a variety of different situations, um, in a variety of different cultural settings. Uh, these, these letters are written to all sorts of churches, from, from the faithfulness of Ephesus to the idolatry of Pergamum, from the poverty of Smyrna to the wealth of Laodicea, from the vibrancy of Philadelphia to the spiritual deadness of Sardis. We've seen the words of Christ to each of these churches, seen how the churches have responded in different ways to the cultural pressures that they face living under the Roman Empire. And we've seen how they've attempted to live as Christians in a society that doesn't support their faith or their convictions. We've meditated on these words of Christ to his church over these past months, allowing his words to challenge us and to encourage us and to correct us and to transform us to each of these churches, Jesus reminds them of who he is, of what he calls them to as his people, and of what he promises to do for them when he comes again. And now we come to Revelation chapter 4, the passage that we're going to be reading today. And the Apostle John is caught up in this vision of heaven and of one seated on the throne, bringing us back to some of the same imagery that we saw in chapter 1, when Christ revealed himself as the great and terrible emperor of the universe, depicted in this banner over here. John's caught up in this vision of the glory of God, and we are privileged today to receive this vision, then, and rejoice with John that behind it all, behind all the lies of the empires that seek to control our world, behind the powers of darkness that seem to rule the earth, behind the false stories that give life and, and that narrate a culture and society that is opposed to the one true God. Behind all of that, God is in control. John has a vision of the throne of heaven, a vision that reveals the truth of things, a vision that he shares with the churches of Jesus Christ and with us today. And so as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the word of the Lord, let's come before him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in the words of this book, you speak to us. Lord, we pray that as we read this amazing an awesome passage today that you would send your Holy Spirit to us to transform us to open our hearts and our minds to open our eyes so that we can see you for who you are Lord we pray that you would transform us more and more into the image of your son Jesus Christ so that we may serve you in goodness and in truth for all of our days in his name we pray Amen. Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to be reading the whole chapter. <clears throat> I thought about doing 4 and 5, but then I practiced reading that, and now it's like really long. <laughs> so we're just doing chapter 4. 
John writes, after this, I looked, that is after, after Christ uh, dictates these seven letters to him to give to the churches in Asia Minor, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking like, to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third was like, the third had a, had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in Christ, when we read passages like the one that we just read for today, these passages of power and beauty, of glory and majesty, these passages that speak so beautifully of the awesomeness of our Lord and God, I feel incredibly unworthy for the task set before me. These words of scripture are so powerful, so haunting, so mysterious, that I feel kind of like a fool when I come before you to talk about them. Because I feel like I'm talking about something that I have barely an elementary grasp of. What we have before us today is a vision of God. A vision of the invisible God. The God who created the heavens and the earth and sustains them by his power. This is the vision that the Apostle John is given after Christ dictates the seven letters to the churches. And this is a vision that's not only for John, but it's a vision that's to be shared with these seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These seven churches that we've grown to, to know over these past months. 
these seven churches scattered across what is now modern-day Turkey, living under the power of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, trying their best to figure out how to live faithfully as followers of Christ in a world of darkness and sin. I think that a lot of the time when we read the book of Revelation, we sort of like categorize these first three chapters into sort of their own separate thing. We read through the seven letters to the seven churches, and then we get to Revelation 4, and we're like, okay, now the good stuff. Here's the good stuff. This is what, this is what, we're, this is what we're excited about. Because what follows in chapters 4 through 22 is this epic, visionary, symbolic account of the cosmic battle for heaven and earth. And we see these awesome visions throughout the book of angels and demons, of, of dragons and beasts and archangels and plagues and monsters and wars and heavenly creatures. And it's easy for us to forget that this vision is written to seven churches. Seven churches living under the Roman Empire, that the rest of this vision is supposed to speak to these seven churches to help them try and make some sense of the situation that they find themselves in in life. We've said before in this series that numbers are really important in the book of Revelation, especially the number seven. And, and we see that throughout the book as, as, we move, as we move ahead. When we read the entire book of Revelation, we start to see how it's patterned in these sort of cycles of seven. We see the seven seals opened and the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out and the seven trumpets of the apocalypse blown and scattered throughout the book. We see seven beatitudes. We see seven I am statements by Christ. And, all of these, and in all of these sevens that order and structure the book, we forget that the first series of seven was the seven lampstands, the seven churches. The seven churches from, the, the seven letters to the churches from the one who walks among the candlestands and who speaks words of comfort and correction to his people living in the world. The seven churches, the seven lampstands, are the beginning of these series of seven that provide order and structure to the rest of the book of Revelation. So they're an important part of the book. They're not something that you just sort of skip and get to the good stuff. And so that's something that I found exciting as we've taken the time to look through those over these past months. But I think that the seven letters do something else that's important for us. The seven letters remind us that this fantastic and discomforting vision that we read in the rest of the book of Revelation is given for the sake of the church as it tries to faithfully live in a world, in the world until Christ comes again. And the thing that amazes me is the diversity of situations that these churches find themselves in. We remember Ephesus, strong and faithful Ephesus, a church that rejects heresy and holds firm to the truth of Jesus Christ, but which has lost its passion and its love for the gospel. Jesus reminds them that he is present with them, and he promises them that when he comes again, they will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We remember Smyrna, poor and suffering Smyrna, a church living under constant threat from the hostile synagogue on the one hand and the unaccommodating empire on the other. 
To them, Jesus reminds them that he is the first and the last who has conquered death and brings new life and promises them that they will not be hurt at all by the second death. We remember Pergamum and Thyatira, two churches that have tried to find creative ways to live as Christians while still participating in the functions, the social functions, the the festivals of their pagan society. To Pergamum, Jesus says that he holds the double-edged sword of the word of God, and he calls them to stay true to that word, promising them that he will give them hidden manna and a new name. To Thyatira, Jesus reminds them that he is the holy God who has eyes of blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze, and he calls them to live in holiness and to reject any teachings that lead to sin, and he promises them that they will reign with him over the nations when he comes again. To Sardis, a church that has a reputation for being alive but is dead inside, Jesus reminds them that he holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hands. Jesus tells them to wake up, to be alive and sincere in their faith, and he promises them that when he comes again, he will dress them in white robes and acknowledge their name before his Father and all his angels. To Philadelphia, a church that's been kicked out of the synagogue and cut off from the covenant from the people of Israel, Jesus reminds them that he is the one who holds the key of David and that he has opened the door for them to receive the covenant promises of God to his people. Jesus encourages the Christians in Philadelphia to persevere, to endure to the end. And he promises them that when he comes again, he will give them a new name and make them citizens of the kingdom of God in the new Jerusalem, where they will live with him forever. And finally, to Laodicea, to this church that has so much wealth that they don't think they really need God's help that much, Jesus tells them to rely wholeheartedly and completely on his grace, not on their own power. And he promises them that when he comes again, they will sit together with him on his throne. The thing that amazes me about these seven letters to the seven churches is how completely different these seven churches are, one from the other. And yet, despite their differences, Jesus holds them all in his hand, caring for them, sending his angels to watch over them, calling them to live for him, to obey him, correcting them when they go astray, encouraging them when they face trials and hardships, providing for them through his word, through his promises, through his spirit, when they feel that they are in need. And I think that this holds an important lesson for us today. Because I think it's all too easy for us to think that all churches should be the same, that all churches should be alike. It's very easy for us to say things like, oh, that church over there, they're just doing everything wrong. Or, oh, that church over there, we should be more like them. We should be like that church. But Jesus never tells any of these churches that they need to be like another church. Jesus doesn't say to, Jesus doesn't look at at wealthy Laodicea and say, you should be more like poor Smyrna. Jesus doesn't look at dying Sardis and say, you should be more like vibrant Philadelphia. 
Jesus recognizes that these different churches have to work out how to live faithfully in their own situation, how to be banners of the gospel in their own cities, in their very different cities, how to be ambassadors of Christ in their own setting. Jesus calls the church to be a city on a hill, to shine the light of salvation into the world, but he calls us to live on our own hill. He doesn't tell us to find the shiniest hill and go there. What the seven letters to the churches teach us is that God calls us to live faithfully as Christians where we are. And the book of Revelation testifies to this truth. Different churches have have to live faithfully in different contexts. And each of these contexts has its own challenges and its own blessings. The church living under poverty and persecution is blessed in that they know what it means to rely completely on the grace of God, but they wrestle with the temptation to despair. The church living in affluence and influence is blessed in that they can live out their faith, live out their calling without fear of persecution, but they wrestle with the temptation to believe that they don't need the grace of God, that they already have everything they need. Different churches living in different situations share the same calling, serve the same Lord, confess the same faith, worship the same God. But how they do that has to be worked out in their own unique position, in the unique place where God has called them to be signs that point to his love. But even though the seven churches in Revelation and all churches across the world and throughout history have to figure out what it means to live faithful lives in their own context, they're not alone. And that's what Revelation 4 and the rest of the book of Revelation teaches us. The book of Revelation is written to all of these churches. To all of these churches. And that shows us that these churches are united together by the bond of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of the universe, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. These different churches living in different contexts face their own unique challenges, but they are all united into one body and one spirit. They all share one calling, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Churches live their faith in very different contexts. They face different challenges. They experience different sufferings. They share different joys. They experience different blessings. The Christian churches in Syria face a very different reality than what we face here. The Christian churches in downtown Chicago face a very different reality than what we face here. The Christian churches in the jungles of the Amazon face a very different reality than what we face here. The Christian churches in the mountains of Tibet face a very different reality than what we face here. All of these churches face different social and cultural pressures, different economic realities, different social and political forces, different stories that try to control their lives. All of these churches face different kinds of suffering. For some, the blood is on the streets and they cry out to God to deliver them from violence. For others, the bleeding is internal. And they cry out to God to deliver them from their own self-destruction, from their pride and greed 
and lust and despair. But to all of these churches, John offers a vision of the one true God who is seated on the throne of heaven, surrounded by glittering jewels and unearthly creatures, surrounded by saints and angels who sing his praises day and night, faithfully watching over the seven lampstands and over the sea of crystal. His throne flashes and thunders, and the heavenly hosts sing of his righteous rule over heaven and earth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. To the churches living under the power of Rome, John shows that the one true God reigns in heaven and has true power. Against the lies and the false stories that claim that the emperor of Rome is the divine king over all the earth, John shows us that the God who created heaven and earth sits on the throne of heaven. Against the Roman army that seeks to control the whole world, John shows us that when we roll back the clouds, when we look through the doorway of heaven, we see a different story. A story of the God who created the heavens and the earth. A story of the God who rules over the nations from his throne. A story of the God who is worthy to receive honor and thanks and praise and glory. The God who comes to us in Christ and tells us, as we read in Revelation 1, he tells us, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the key to death and Hades. What the book of Revelation teaches us more than anything is that the kingdom of God is already being established on the earth. That when we look up to heaven, when we look past the stories that, and the lies that our culture constructs about who's really in control of the world, we see that God sits on his throne. This is the story that the book of Revelation tells us, that, that, that God is bringing the light of salvation to the far corners of the earth through his church to bring in the full number of those who will be saved, which the book of Revelation later describes as a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is the story that the book of Revelation tells us. This is the reality that we join in when we are baptized and when we profess our faith in Jesus Christ. Wherever we exist as God's people, wherever he calls us to live lives of faithfulness and obedience before him, no matter what stories or, or lies those in power might tell us about who really controls the world, we have been marked as people the covenant. We have been, I don't know what the word is, what, what do you call it when you become a citizen? We have been, been nationalized. Is that it? Naturalized. We have been naturalized, yes, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We, we have been marked by God, chosen by him to be a light to the nations. A city on a hill. And in this calling, we are not alone. 
because God is gathering to himself a people called from every corner of the earth. And he promises that he will be with us always, watching over his churches from the throne of heaven, sending his angels to protect us, watching over his churches until the new Jerusalem comes down to the earth and the dwelling place of God is with his people. This is the future that we hope for, that we pray for, that we long for with every fiber of our being. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth is full of your glory. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in these words of scripture. We thank you that you sit on the throne of heaven and control the path of history. Lord, we look out into our world and we see violence and death. We see people who oppose you to your face. We see violence and suffering. And Lord, we pray that you would come quickly and establish your kingdom on the earth, bring peace to all nations, that we may love you and serve you and worship you together with all nations in peace. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.